Welcome to The Growth Equation, PE Perspectives on Product. I'm David Subar, the Managing Partner of Interna. Today I talked to Troy Williams, Managing Partner of Achieve Partners. Achieve Partners is a private equity firm that invests in edutech, specifically in technology firms that support the education market. It's interesting. The things they invest in are different than other tech firms. There's a timeliness, a seasonality to edutech wrapped around the school year, which creates unique challenges for those kind of companies. Troy talks about that in this episode. He talks about what that means for when you release product and when you don't release product. He also has interesting perspective on when you've released too much product and you're not ready from a go-to-market perspective. I think you'll enjoy this episode. I certainly did. Troy talks about those things and has much other wisdom to share. So let's dig in. Thank you, Troy, for being here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here today, David. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you. So let's let's set the stage. How did you get into PE? How did you start your career? When I left that and became an entrepreneur, founded a company, it was VC-backed, ran that company for nine years, and then ultimately sold it. And when I sold it, I was recruited into a major corporation to build them a division through a buy strategy. And so had some success doing that in building a, what was an educational software division through buying a number of, of, of smaller bootstrapped software companies. And it was from there that I migrated into kind of our predecessor firm to, to invest in fast growing, you know, educational software companies. And, and that was my path into private equity. Got it. And so, so why the edu, why the focus on education had you? It was because of the kind of companies you were buying before? Yeah. So I, my company was really an e-library company or, or really one of the first e-book companies, if you will. And this was nine years before the launch of Kindle. So we were, we were really early and we launched as a B2C company selling to consumers. But along the way, about three or four years in, Google decided to enter the space. And so we kind of pivoted into selling to schools. And it was at that time that my company was kind of considered an ed tech company. And, and so when we sold it, I, I stayed in the education space. Obviously, I find education incredibly fulfilling. The concept of doing good and doing well financially is, is very attractive to me and to many other people. So it's incredibly fulfilling to help companies that have the opportunity to to have a massive impact on student learning and outcomes and the success of our educational institutions. Because fundamentally, I believe our democracy is predicated upon a, an educated population that can that can that can think critically. And and given all the complexity in our world today and all the things that are happening with technology, it's only more important than ever that we have an educated populace. I 100% agree with that. I, I prefer educated voters to ignorant ones. We all do. Well, <laughs> most of us do. <laughs> when did the chief partners start? 
Well, our predecessor firm was called University Ventures. It started in 2011, and we were branded as Achieve Partners in 2018. So depending on how you look at it, we've been around for, for 12 or, or five years. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about some key portfolio companies. Can you tell about some the greatest success stories you had? And then I'm going to ask you the other side about some things that you learned that might have been harder lessons. Yeah. So, well, one of the, one of the great success compa- successful companies was uh, a company called Examity that we invested in, in in early 2017 that we exited in 2019. So it was only a 26-month hold period. But this was a company that um, provides online proctoring for test taking. And so authenticates to make sure that the David who's taking the test is actually the David who's, who's enrolled in the class. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then while you take the test to make sure that you're not, you're not cheating or, or doing something inappropriate. And so it has a lot of different technologies, eye tracking, facial recognition, voice recognition, keystroke recognition, various other things that did that. And we invested in, in 2017 as big believers that, that test taking was going to move online. There were relatively few other folks who saw that opportunity at that, that point in time. And, and we exited actually in 2019 before COVID. This is, a, this is a solution that blew up during COVID. The whole sector grew dramatically. And it became apparent to everybody that you needed to have this type of solution as, as everybody was suddenly taking their classes and studying from home. Yeah, I've got two kids in med school and they're both, uh, I'm not sure if they use that technology or similar technology to do uh, classes from home. And I asked, I walked in once and I was shooed away quickly. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to have any other voices in the room. That'll, that'll, that'll throw up a red flag. It'll have to be reviewed. That yeah. clip, that portion of the test will have to be reviewed to make sure that you are you are helping them uh, cheat. Well, I promise anybody who, if if one of my daughters is your surgeons, they did not cheat. Their <laughs> surgery will go well. <laughs> Good. Good. So what what made it was? So you guys had foresight that made that successful. Were there other attributes? Well, I mean, one of the things is is is. You know, we're pretty focused on founders and finding the right founders. Uh, we, we bet bootstrap founders and help them scale. So, you know, we knew a lot of folks in the higher ed space, uh, as well as in the professional certification space, but fundamentally there was a great founder there and there was great momentum when we invested. Uh, but we did add uh, a focus around professional certifications, which the ultimate buyer of this company was, was Great Hill. And uh, I think Great Hill underwrote to that pro- professional certification market, whereas previously the company had almost all of its sales from, from higher education. So mostly what we do is we scale sales and marketing go to market. Since we focus on businesses that sell to schools or universities, it's really important to understand the process of selling to schools and universities. And most generalists come into these type of companies and try to use the playbook they use in selling to companies and corporations, which doesn't necessarily work. You're effectively selling to a government entity. Sales cycles are long. And so it's about knowing how to scale the sales and marketing. And that's what we really did for Examity is we helped them scale that go-to-market. So the founders were product people, engineering people. What did they look like? Yeah, they were, they were primarily product people. Michael London is, is the founder of, 
of Examity, and he was a third-time entrepreneur. He had he had previously been at Bloomberg, and prior to that, he founded a company that was was acquired by Bright Horizons, and his co-founder of that company is the current CEO of Bright Horizon, which is a very successful, large publicly traded firm. Yep. So let's go to the other side. You don't have to name a company, but tell a story about one that maybe didn't work out as well and some things you learned there, what you might've changed. Yeah. So most of our, our challenges, uh, challenging investments, uh, have to do with companies that we just bought too early. And, and we used to do some, some growth equity and, and minority investing, which we don't do anymore, primarily for this reason. We found that, uh, when we invest too early, it, it's, it's, it's hard to sustain a, what may be early growth that that isn't sustainable. And so that's most of our, our challenging investments are just companies that, that, that we got into too early because they were primarily sexy and there was a lot of belief in what the potential was. And so today I would say, you know, we're not necessarily running toward AI and education companies. We have some in our portfolio, but, but, but that's not like a focus. Whenever we see a lot of generalists get excited about a, a trend, that's a, that's a warning sign to us to stay away from it. The more boring, the more interesting it is to us. And so a lot of administrative solutions and, and things that are in the background, making schools and universities much more productive and effective, but, but nece aren't necessarily things that you would ever read about in the paper or, or going to make news headlines are where we find the ability to create alpha. Got it. Okay. So basically the companies already have this kind of product market fit and you're accelerating, you're accelerating their ability to, to penetrate the market. Yeah. I mean, right? one of the, yeah, one of the companies that was the most, one of the biggest challenges for us, it was just, it was a Y Combinator graduate and it was a company that had a lot of sex appeal, if you will, around it. And there were a lot of people chasing it. We're typically most successful where, when we are one of we are either the only bidder or one of two or three bidders rather than in a situation where there's, there's a whole lot of people with interest in the company. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you go into a company, you're, you, you purchased it. They've had some founders. Maybe the founders have a strong product background, strong engineering background. What do you, what do you instinctively, what do you wish they instinctively knew? What makes, you know, what makes those people successful for companies you buy? Yeah, I mean, first off, we have a little bit different uh, approach to most PE firms in that we get to know a founder or a, a management team for typically more than a year before we invest. And so we get, we, it's one of our core filters is who that team, team is. And one of the things we're looking for are just mission-driven folks. You know, folks who, they're, they're there not just for the returns, they're there because they're trying to solve a problem that they fundamentally care about. And that means that they're up at 2 a.m. thinking about the business, both in good times and bad times, right? Not just because mm -hmm. they're stressed, but because they're, they're just mission driven. So that's one of those things that is, is a hard to quantify thing. But it's the first meeting the founder is telling me how rich he or she's going to get or how rich I'm going to get after I invest. That's actually probably a warning sign. I want to hear why they're changing the world and why they're passionate about changing the world and, and how they, they measure the outcomes and the effectiveness of their product. 
So it really comes down to believing in efficacy and valuing efficacy, sometimes even more so than profits. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We, I believe that we believe that internally it's, it's profits and, and profits and revenue are side effect of creating value and knowing how to do that. Do you work with them on roadmaps and the things that are on the roadmaps and why they're on the roadmaps and how they're measuring each of them, or do they just come to you on that? Yeah, well, conceptually, we spend time before we invest setting out a strategic plan. Most of the associates and vice presidents at Achieve Partners come out of either McKinsey and BCG, which is another, which is another, you know, fundamental difference between most PE firms and in this place that we believe we can train people on the PE components of investing, but it's really hard for us to give give folks who might be coming out of other PE firms or or banking the skill set that a McKinsey or a BCG would give their associates. So we spend time aligning before investment on, on what the, the, the roadmap and strategy is uh, on a go forward basis. And so that's one of the reasons we get picked, even if we're not the highest bidder uh, many times by founders, because they, they recognize that we are, we're committed to, to the outcome and the goals and that we've aligned on it. And so you know, then post-investment, it's really about executing against that strategy and implementing that strategy. And certainly a part of that is, is staging and timing of product investment and, and, and go to market investment around, around those products. And so, you know, depending on the company, it can, it can mean that we're first going to scale up a sales organization, go to market regionally or nationally before we spend more mo- money building new products. It's, you know, again, founder-led companies are oftentimes building product faster than they're building go-to-market. And, and many times it's important to pause new development to let the go-to-market mature enough uh, to catch up to the product vision. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard conversation with founders, but, but, but oftentimes it's necessary to mature the, the existing product before you continue to add onto it. And that means spending more time in scaling, scaling the sales and marketing and separating renewals and upsells from, from new sales and, and really having that feedback loop from customer success back into product kind of built out before we start building more product. But it's interesting because B2B companies and B2C companies are very different. Obviously the kind of companies you're backing are effectively B2B or that's really right. B2B yeah. university, right? And the, the feedback channel in a B2B market is harder. It's not, you know, product growth. I do this feature and then people click on it and therefore I get more usage. Fundamentally different. Yeah. But With, yeah. At a, so my company was a B2C company, the company I founded 20 plus years ago, and we could get feedback overnight and decide the next day, well, what, what iteration we were going to do today, you know, it's a year long sales cycle in, in selling to schools or universities. And so you really, in some, sometimes have to wait nearly a year to get good feedback on a new, on a new product development. And so it's, it's just fundamentally different than running a B2C kind of app based or web based solution, mobile based solution. And we have to think about it differently. And, and, and generalist investors who come into the space who don't realize that you really can't shorten the sales cycles in selling to schools. You can't get them to 60 to 90 days, even though they think they might be able to, you can't, you have to, you have to build a business around the fact of that, of that sales cycle. 
And you probably have seasonality, right? You have to sell generally before the school year starts. Right. Yeah. Your core selling season is, is the second and third quarter of the year. You know, most budgets go July to June. And so they're either buying in the second quarter with remainder funds that they have left over, or they're buying in the third quarter with a new budget. And, and the fourth and first quarters tend to be pretty dark in terms yeah. of new sales. You got to be building pipeline. It's important time to build the pipeline that you're going to close in the second and third quarter, but, but you're not going to get a lot of bookings. So on, on product roadmaps, some features help sell and some features help use in, B2, in B2B environments. Sometimes, unfortunately, they're not the same, you know, the same feature may not help sell and may increase usage for the end user. Do you find that much in the university market that you like that bifurcation of users and things you have to have to close a sale versus what's ultimately valuable for the end user? Less so probably than, than in the B2C market, primarily because there's a, it's more of a committee led decision, decision basis. So it's not, it's not one person getting excited about a feature and buying it's, it's a relatively complex time consuming sale. And so, yeah, there are certain check the box items that really don't drive efficacy or usage that you have to have. They're just table stakes, but so they're more disqualifiers if you don't, as opposed to driving the sale. There's very few things that a feature that actually drives a sale that's not efficacious or not, not, not used, but there are a number of table stakes function functionality, just because somebody on the committee cares about that. And there's somebody like that at every institution, but you have to have it, even though it's not that important, but that again, it's not driving the sale. So I would say, I would say rather than driving the sale, it's, it's, it's really what drives sales in, in, in education is, is referenceable clients. It's whether or not you've sold peer institutions. That's the, that's the, that's the thing that actually accelerates sales. So the case that there's some member of the committee that wants a particular feature, are those generally one-offs that they want, or are those generally features that other universities have, other universities want? Yeah, so it, it, it's, a, it's a mixture. There are certain functional groups that will be on committees, whatever, whatever group, whatever type of product you're selling, and that functional group, you can imagine that a university could be the registrar. All registrars are going to care about similar things. And so the reality is the registrar is going to be on the committee and going to want that thing, whether or not it's really going to drive efficacy, you know, efficacy for the product for the institution. And you're just going to have to have it separate from that. You know, I would say, especially in higher ed, more so than K-12, every institution is a snowflake and it thinks that it is unique and has unique expectations. And so one of the things that happens in higher ed is you see homegrown solutions early on and, and, you know, flagship institutions. Now we're talking about big universities like the University of Texas or University of West, Wisconsin or, you know, UCLA or another institution like that. Oftentimes will build solutions for themselves out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's smaller institutions who can't afford to do that, to do that, that adopt kind of a generic solution. That generic solution over time gets better and better and better. And eventually the costs of maintaining their homegrown solution that those flagship institutions built gets more and more expensive with more and more technical debt that they then move 
to the generic solution, which now has matured over a course of time with hundreds, if not thousands of clients that have generalized what is, what is needed across the ecosystem. But the challenge of that migration, turning, turning off that homegrown solution is something that they're having to give up the unique nooks and crannies that they built, that they love for something that's much more scalable and, 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 you know, generalizable. And so that's just a trend line that we've seen in virtually every subsector of software at the university level. And I think it's probably true in some other sectors as well, but it's really obvious in the higher education space. So you basically innovators dilemma out the big systems that giant universities built. Yeah. And it happens over a decade or more, but we can, you know, it happens so slowly that we can observe it. happening and, and make investments. And so sometimes people say, you know, one of the things about education is it's behind corporate America in terms of adopting software and solutions. And so I, I oftentimes say, I don't have to be visionary. I just have to look at what the corporations did six years ago and what the universities or schools aren't yet doing and say, well, how long is it going to take them to get there and, and invest along that time frame? But that, that it is a reality that large universities have massive resources and do have some unique components and they have a, a lot of different fiefdoms on fiefdoms on campus who are very vocal and if they are responsive to those vocal minorities they build product that is not scalable or generalizable to other institutions okay so i want to wrap this back into product managing engineering for a second so you've got a sales cycle which sometimes pick at bigger institutions requires some unique feature, uh, and, and you have the general development process. So here's some features we're going to build because they create value, but for this sale, and by the way, this is typical of a lot of B2B for this sale, we need to build this feature and that's distracting maybe from our main life cycle or product, product life cycle. Are there unique attributes you need your tech teams and your product teams to be able to deal with those two kind of things uh, simultaneously. And then I'm going to add a third one because I'm inferring that then there's this integration pack is almost like professional services for integrating the things you build into these larger settings. Yeah. And that think, may be the same team or a different team. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that the core philosophy is that you have, you, you have to have an architect and a tech leader who understands what is generalizable and what is, what is scalable. And you need a product leader who's hearing from multiple customers and able to differentiate between one-offs and, and general, more general, generalizable needs. And so then you do not build into the platform anything that's, that, that smells like it's a one-off. You, you have a platform and then you structured so you can build features and functionalities that are one-offs on top of that. And then you charge that particular institution the full cost plus profit on building out that functionality for them. And can you make it clear this is uniquely being built for you? So you're going to have to pay for it. And we'll see whether or not they're willing to pay for it. Many of them are not willing to pay for it, which then immediately tells you it's not that big of a need. Yeah. And we get out of doing it. So it's a lot of so discipline. Must- and it requires, it requires the, the CEO and the leadership team to 
to not get overly excited about any one sale and have discipline to build something that's truly scalable. And, 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 you know, obviously we, everybody makes mistakes now and again on that front and regrets them, but, but, you know, there are certain types of founders or leaders who are sale, they're the salespeople and they get excited about sales, no matter what, and selling the big deal. And they can, those type of leaders can lead you down a really bad road in, in this sec, in this, in this sector of the economy. Yeah. And I've seen that dance before between sales and product. Product tends to be future long-term thinking. Sales tends to be what's this quarter. And that relationship is critical in how they work. And then with engineering as well. That's right. Um, what, what are the attributes do you think? You kind of described what the sales folks need to have to play uh, nice in that sandbox. What are, the, what are the product and engineering leaders need to look like? Because sometimes they have to make trade-offs that hurt. Yeah, look, I mean, I think product leaders, the most important thing is that they ideally have spent a ton of time with the customers and they come out of something close to the ecosystem that they're building for. And if not, that they're spending a ton of time actually on site with customers, not just doing Zooms, but really getting into it. And, and I think that differentiates really successful companies from, from companies that, you know, look, most founders had a vision. I know I had a vision. That vision tends to hold back companies after the first launch of the prospect, uh, many times. I mean, Steve Jobs accepted probably, but many, many other founders have this sense that they know where the market's going. And the reality is once you get into market with a product, it's time to have your product leader go sit with customers all day, every day, almost. And, and really understand where those needs are so that they can make these very hard trade-offs. You know, I always say products should define what's going to be built and then technology and the engineering group defines how it's going to be built, meaning what, what technology choices or, or tools are going to be used. And the two of them have to have a, 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 you know, a fight, drag it out to figure out when it's going to be delivered. And there's trade-offs to be made, what you want built and, and how it's going to be built in order to, in order to, you know, and decide when it's going to be delivered. And, and in this market, it needs to be delivered in June or July, be ready for August or, or else you've missed a whole year. And so those lead to very hard decisions in many other sectors. A few weeks later does not make that big a difference between, you know, it might, it might affect one quarter, but it doesn't make that big a difference. But in, in schools and universities, missing, missing the, the launching product, you could lose a whole year. Interesting. So I picked up a lot of things you just said there differently. One was the vision doesn't survive. No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or Mike Tyson, I think, said everyone has a plan to get hit in the mouth. Yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, uh, you can have a, the reality is you could be directionally right, but, and, 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 and some founders have directional vis visions that are right for multiple iterations, but, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that they're perfectly right. They need to be adjusted as soon as you, as soon as you, uh, come in contact with that punch, so to speak. Yeah. So it's about, so sitting with the customer, really the way I interpreted what you just said, it's about knowledge and empathy for. Yeah. yeah. It's leaving the ego at the door, which is the mistake I made when I was in my twenties. I had a very strong vision of what 
what I thought we should build. And the reality was they needed to be listening to customers. I have like three lines of questions from that. One is when you are, let's say you have to hire a new product leader or a customer or at a, at a portfolio company. Can you test for that? Is that something that becomes obvious? Look, most, most people are going to tell you when you, so you can test for it, for it in the sense of you can ask them, how, how much time did you spend on site with customers in the past year? I mean, if they tell you yeah. a lie, then, you know, it's harder, to, you know, it's harder to find that lie, but most people will tell you exactly how they spend their time. And, and that's a pretty big telling, you know, that's pretty telling as to whether or not they're a functionary or, or there's somebody who, who actually understands how to extract customer needs in a way that gets you to product market fit faster. Yeah. So. Do you have situations where you prefer the CTO and the chief product officer to be one person or versus two? I, I always prefer them to be two people and not to report to one another. Because. Because uh, of that dialectic that I talked about. I, I think yep. otherwise, otherwise one is getting the upper hand on determining the wind, the wet, and it's, mm -hmm. it's really important for, for from the architecture perspective, choices to be made that are, uh, that are generalizable and scalable, but from the product perspective, you know, you need to have folks who really understand that, that, that it has to be done this way in order for customers, in order for it to be efficacious for customers in a way that, that many time, times engineers, they just don't, that's too soft, too, too, too much of a soft science for, for many engineers. And so. If you have a CTO in charge of both, which is oftentimes when you have one, they're either coming out of the product side or the, the engineering side. They're not, not usually coming out of both. So it's difficult. I think it's just, I, I prefer at the stage of companies we invest in to, to have a chief product officer and, you know, a CTO or, or head of engineering, both report to the CTO, but the CEO or the COO, depending on the company. Yeah. So. Tell me about a time where you saw something going awry with product or engineering and you had to do an early intervention to prevent a crisis. What, what do you, what kind of things do you look at as an investor? What kind of things do you see? What kind of steps do you like to take? Well, I don't know if I have any crystallized, you should have asked me that in advance so I could think about that. <laughs> Think of a, a specific case and give you a great answer. But I would say, you know, you're, you're oftentimes in a board meeting where there's, there's trade-offs being made around technical debt, a need to go back and solve things, his, historic issues, as well as the need to drive new product development. And there's, there's trade-offs there. And it, it really has to, you know, it really requires a lot of plug questioning, um, and, and analysis. And there's a desire to just, you know, have a one hour or 90 minute meeting and come out of it with an answer. And the reality is that that's usually, you're usually not going to get to the right answer. What, what you have to do is narrow down the choices and then research those choices and come back and make uh, in mul sometimes multiple iterations of that before you can make a really momentous decision like replatforming. 
I seen, you know, one of the biggest mistakes is a decision to replatform too quickly. Many times it's coming from the engineering side where there's a desire, there's just so much technical debt to replatform on a company that's growing. But if you have to hit the pause button for a year or 18 months, it's really hard to restart the engine of growth that a company has. And so, you know, a massive kind of comprehensive replatforming is my experience almost always a mistake, certainly on the investment horizon we have, which is typically five to seven years. And so it, it really requires much more judicious and thoughtful approach to, okay, let's make sure that we at first modularize the product so that there are different modules, right? And so it's not like a massive one-step replatforming. We're able to both advance certain products, but one of the key things is to, to, to move from monolithic platform, if you have one, into a platform with multiple different modules that can be either re-architected or advanced and ideally priced separately from one another. It's a, yeah, I, I have conversations with CTOs about this all the time. If you're going to walk up to the CEO or the board and say, we're not going to do anything for six months, but everything's going to be much better later. DOA in my book. Yeah, right, right. Nobody ever says yes to that because they don't believe the six months. And they can't wait for six months to stop all development. Just not possible. So, yeah, but, but, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work that can immediately begin to kind of seize apart certain parts of the product, which can be costly and time consuming, but absolutely needs to start because, you know, if you're not going to do that, and I agree, it never is going to be six months, but if you're going to do it kind of piecemeal over time, it, it could take many years. And so you have to, you have to make sure you're, you're staging everything appropriately and, and doing the most important tasks because now you're, instead of doing things in parallel, you're doing them serially and you need to make sure that you've ordered them properly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's, brings me up to maybe my last question is we see a lot of companies like that, right? Where they have to make these decisions and sometimes it comes down to the decision of we keep putting capital into product management and engineering and not getting more out. And they have to make the decision about whether we reduce the investment or whether we just fundamentally change something about the way product management and engineering work. Do you, do you come to those kind of junctures in the road? Do you see things like that? Or is it less drastic of that kind of, is it less of an existential choice? Yeah, well, hopefully we've done our diligence before we get into a company that we don't, we don't end with that. We don't end up with that, that, that hard of a question being asked. You know, I'm a, I'm a fairly frugal guy in terms of kind of how I think about investing in, in businesses when we get in, as well as investments we make along the way. And I think when you ask hard questions and you repeatedly ask those hard questions and, and make sure you get an answer that makes sense. There's typically a cheaper way, a much cheaper way to solve is a classic 80, 20 rule. You solve 80% of the problem with 20% of the, uh, the investment. And there tends to be a, a group out there who, who just wants it to be pretty. They want the mm -hmm. thing to bow on, on top and they want it to be, you know, just 
just architected. Everything, everything's in its spot. And that's incredibly expensive uh, proposition. And so, you know, in life and in companies and in running things, the perfect is the enemy of the good enough. And, and you, you really have to be pretty rigorous of saying, what does it take us? What does it take us in terms of investment and time to get good enough? And let's get going on that. But we're definitely not doing the perfect. And if you yeah. want to do the perfect, that's what gets you excited. This is probably not the right place. Actually, I'll leave one last question. I'm a company and I'm looking for an investment and I'm going to approach you. What do you want me to know? What do you want me to say to you? What would be helpful? What would be helpful for you for possible investment companies to know about you? I want to know why you're doing what you're doing and what motivates you and, and how committed you are for the next 10 years. And, and, and one of the reasons I go back to what I said, if, if, if your answer is, you know, I'm trying to get rich, well, you know, the funny thing about that is people always seem to find the grass is always greener. So there's always some other way to get rich faster than as soon as you run into a wall on this way. And I don't want you to give up. I want you to run through that wall. I have to drill through that wall, break that wall down and keep going. And, and so that's why I'm looking for something other than I'm trying to make a bunch of money here. It's all about mission and value creation. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Good. I appreciate the time. Thank you. And thanks. All right. It was fun. 